I encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you have, with, have them with you, to Ephesians 4. I think it's awesome what it is that we're going to be getting into in Scripture this morning and how it's already been demonstrated in different aspects through the service up to this point. And as Pastor Josh reminded us that as we desire to be a faithful church, and as the church of God is being established around the world and and work is being done, that the enemy is going to attack. He is not going to be pleased with this. And so we as a church need to be reminded that we need to be consistent, that we need to be faithful, we need to keep on pressing forward. We cannot get lazy in what it is that we have been called by God to do. And so I trust that the Lord will use this passage of Scripture to encourage us and challenge us this morning. Um, when I was sitting down front, we were singing our, our songs um, and worshiping through music. I was just glancing around the worship center, and I have to say it was so awesome just to see every age group except for the youngest who are in the nursery in this room worshiping God together in music from the youngest to the oldest. It's just so awesome to see. Um, and we cannot take that for granted, and I want to praise God for it because it's just awesome to see every single week, and uh, I praise God for you guys. Let's um, start in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for that reminder that we had already this morning that you are going to build your church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. You're going to equip your church and you're going to teach your church and you're going to lead your church and you're going to guide your church. And we as your church hopefully will be used by you as we are faithful to you, carrying out what you've called us to do as, your, as our mission, to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching all that you've told us to observe. God, I pray that you would just speak to us through your word this morning and the brief time that we've got in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing on our series on We Are the Church. Today we're going to be talking about being a distinct church. There is something to be said about the word distinct. And as I was thinking about what makes things distinct, I got thinking, what what makes Canada distinct? What's distinctly Canadian? Now, if I asked you that question, somebody holler out an answer. What is distinctly Canadian? Maple syrup. I, you know what? I was expecting hockey a lot more boldly than what I was hearing there, surprisingly enough. Lacrosse. There you go. Well, that is distinctly Canadian. I'm going to read two examples of things that are distinctly Canadian that none of you said and none of you thought about because you didn't realize this, and neither did I. Ginger ale is distinctly Canadian, not just because it's Canada dry ginger ale, but in fact, it actually started in Canada. According to the magazine from U of T, it's, it was called the Champagne of Ginger Ales. Don't get sidetracked with the word champagne, guys. It was created by John James McLaughlin, who graduated from Ontario College of Pharmacology or Pharmacy. Um, in 1885, he, after managing one of Brooklyn's largest drugstores, the pharmacist found a, founded a soda, water, and beverage company. 
1904, McLaughlin created Canada Dry Ginger Ale, which was far less sweet than other ginger ales on the market. And with the temperance movement helped popularize it, teetotalers liked to drink, liked the drink because it was a tasty alternative to alcohol. Well, Canada Dry is not owned by a Canadian company, it's owned by an American company today. It is still branded with its very Canadian label and it has the crown and shield on it. But Canadian, Canadians developed ginger ale. Maybe you didn't know that. The other one that I didn't know, and maybe you didn't know, maybe you did. You'll wow me with your intellect after the service. The butter tart. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a fan of butter tarts, so it's not really on my radar. I, I apologize for that. But first published, uh, the first published recipe for the butter tart was in the Royal Victorian Hospital Cookbook in Barrie, Ontario in 1900. But in terms of sheer promotion and glorification of the syrupy paste, uh, sweet pastry, credit must be extended to Barb uh, Rowlandson, founder of Ontario's Best Butter Tart Festival in Midland. It is the largest festival of its kind in the world, and it has featured such modern butter tart fusions as ham and Brussels sprouts, score, and even PB&J. Now, I'm not a fan of, of butter tarts anyway. I will not be touching a ham and Brussels sprout butter tart, let me tell you. <laughs> Those are distinctly Canadian, apparently. Here's the thing. As the Church of Jesus Christ, we are called to be distinct from the rest of the world. And in Ephesians chapter 4, and in its parallel passage in Colossians 3, which I will be reading from and encouraging to look at as well, I want us to look for a quick few minutes this morning on what makes Christians distinct. What does Paul say to this church in Ephesus that really he was emphasizing distinguishes them from the rest of the world. Uh, Pastor Andy read the beginning part of this passage uh, when he read it at the very beginning of the service, and uh, many of you were here to hear it. Some of you were not because you were a little late getting in, so you missed it. So I'm going to reread it. I did jokingly turn to Pastor Josh and said, I, I picked a real encouraging passage to start the service off with. Because it wasn't really the most encouraging passage until the very end of it. But I asked Pastor Andy to read it because we're not going to focus in too much on this section because this is what we once were as before we were believers in Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds the Ephesians of what they once were. But then because they have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he wants to remind them of what they ought to be as believers in Jesus what their life ought to look like. And so we're not going to hone in on the first part very long, but I'm just going to quickly read it. He says this, Therefore I say and testify in the Lord that you should no longer uh, live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity from for the practice of every kind of impurity with, desire, with a desire for more and more. 
This is what they once were like. Paul's emphasizing this because he's talking to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. I did a little bit of reading on the city of Ephesus. It had a temple there called the Temple to Artemis or the Temple to Diana. It was massive. Like even by our standards, we would say that this building was absolutely massive compared to most of our buildings. Now, when we're talking skyscrapers, of course, it wouldn't compare, but this was a temple with multiple columns. The whole building was made out of marble. It was up to four stories tall. It was the center of worship for that entire region. But you know what the worship was all about? It was the worship of the god, goddess Artemis or Diana, and much of it had to do with sexual immorality. There were temple prostitutes. Part of their worship was having sexual relationships with those that served at the temple. It was debauchery all over the place. This was the city and this was the practice, this was the common worship of that region in that city. And these Christians were surrounded by this. Many of them were saved out of it. They didn't really need to be reminded of what they've been saved from. But Paul reminds them, this is what your life was like before, but this is not what your life is like now. Because he says this in verse 20, he says, that this is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. See, Paul didn't plant this church. Most scholars probably think that Apollos was probably the one that planted this church, or Epaphroditus might have been one that, that, that planted this church. And so Paul has heard of their conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's heard of their faith. But since he wasn't the one that actually led them to the Lord, that's why he says, assuming that you've heard about this. And of course, he had heard that they had heard about Christ and had given their lives to Christ. And then he says this, he says, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. See, Paul in Corinthians tells us that when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. So Paul's saying, look, you guys are new creations, Ephesian church. But he said, because we still live in these, these, these corrupted fleshly bodies, we still struggle with sin. And so the way that he describes the way that a Christian is supposed to live is he describes it this way. He says, it's like taking off a dirty, corrupt clothing coat every day you take that corrupt coat off and you put a new coat on a nice clean fresh garment and what that lifestyle looks like is one that he's going to describe here the way that distinguishes a christian from the rest of the world that is what God's calling us as Christians to be doing. And so we're going to hone in on that in verses 25 to the end of the chapter and actually into chapter 5 a little bit. There's three questions that I want us to, to pay attention to. We've already covered the first couple. First was, what are we distinct from? We're distinct from our old sinful life. What makes us distinct? The Lord Jesus Christ. Personal faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the transforming, regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
It is nothing that I muster. It's nothing that you muster. It's what God does in our lives. It's God who makes us distinct. And thirdly, and what we're really going to focus on for the next few minutes is, what does our distinct life look like? If I claim to know Christ as my Lord and Savior, then my life should look different than somebody who doesn't claim the name of Jesus. Now, I've got to say this right off the bat. I've run into this a few different times over the last couple weeks, and I think it's absolutely imperative that we cover this. The reason why the Apostle Paul regularly reminds the believers... The reason why God in the Old Testament regularly reminds the Old Testament believers what their life was like before is so that we don't become self-righteous people. It is so easy to begin to start looking at other people who don't know Christ as Savior as Christians and say, I'll look at the way that they're living. I'm not like that. And there's this pride and there's this arrogance and there's this self-righteousness that creeps in and it is absolutely wrong. We need to realize and, and come to grips with the fact that I am righteous before God only because I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. I have no righteousness of my own. It is all from God and not from me, and so I can't sit there and turn my nose down on somebody who has not had the opportunity to come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I need to look at them with compassion and love with a desire to lead them to Christ so that they can experience the saving work of Jesus that I've had the opportunity to experience. So we don't have the luxury of being self-righteous people. But we are commanded to live distinctly. So look at verse 25 with me. It, it, it's not exhaustive as most anything that we see in the New Testament. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are key things that when people look at our lives, they can see whether or not we are believers in Jesus Christ in these areas. First of all, he says this, Therefore, putting away lying, speak truth each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. As I was doing some study, I was reminded of these passages. See, we're supposed to be putting away lying. In John 8, 42 to 47, Jesus is dealing with the Jews, the religious leaders, and they're pressing him on who he claims to be and what he's teaching. And these people are self-righteous people. They've done all the right things. They think that they've ticked all the boxes that please God but their hearts are darkened, their hearts are sinful, and Jesus takes them to task, and he says this, if God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come to you on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Because you cannot listen to my word. Listen to what he says here. He says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, excuse me, when he tells a lie, he speaks of his own nature because he is the father, excuse me, he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a distinct difference between following Christ and speaking the truth and lying and imitating and following after the devil, the father of lies. When I lie, I'm behaving like the devil does. 
When I'm speaking the truth, I'm following God's example. I'm living the way that God's calling me to live. Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth in John 14, 17. And God's word is called the word of truth in John 17, 17. See, if I'm for the truth, I'm for God. If I'm for God, I'm for the truth. If I'm for lies, I'm for the devil. And we know what lying does. If we are parents and we've dealt with our kids, we, I'm sure, have had this conversation a few times of what lying does when somebody tells a lie. Generally, when I tell a lie, I continue to tell a lie to cover up more of my lies. And I dig myself deeper and deeper because I got to keep on covering up the lie that I, I told. It breaks down trust. I've had this conversation with my own kids that when they lie to me, I can't trust them. Why? Because they haven't been honest. They've tried to deceive me. So when I ask them what they're doing or where they're going, how can I know for sure that they're being honest with me? If they have demonstrated an example, a lifestyle of lying. But you know what? When I'm honest, I demonstrate integrity. I demonstrate the fact that I'm trustworthy, that people can depend on me. Jesus actually told his disciples to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stick by your word. Now we need to understand something about lying and, being, and telling the truth. Telling the truth does not require that we tell everything that we know. There are times when confidentiality is actually important. There are times that there are things that we cannot say because we need to keep things confidential. So that doesn't mean that I'm being deceitful. It just means that I can't tell everything that I know. Sometimes being brutally honest is not helpful. One of the best things that I was taught when I was uh, taking one of my education classes in, in college was, you know, my pro one of my profs said, you know, what happens if one of your students comes up, you know, one of your female students comes up and says, hey, Mr. Appley, like, how do you like my hair? And you're looking at it and you're going, oh, my word, this is terrible. What do you say? You know, is that when you want to be honest? Well, you can't lie. Oh, yeah, that looks awesome. So what do you say? And he's like, I just say, that's really interesting. <laughs> I don't know if I ever practiced that or not, but I'm not saying that that's the best way to do it, but at least you weren't lying and you weren't necessarily being brutally honest, you know. However, withholding for the purpose of deceiving or misleading is a form of lying. And so, as Christians, our speech should be such a way that we are speaking the truth. In another passage in Ephesians, Paul tells us that we as Christians need to speak the truth in love. But I, I, I think in this day and age that we really need to make sure that we understand that statement. See, our culture tells us that if I'm loving, that means I affirm everything and I celebrate everything and I don't ever tell anybody that they might be doing something wrong or living a wrong lifestyle because that's not loving. Sorry, that doesn't make any sense. And ask yourself the question, if, that, if you practically live that out, how that would go. I had a young man one time tell me, you know, my parents don't love me. And I said, why? Because they won't do, let me do whatever I want to do. And I said, the reason why they won't let you do whatever you want to do is because they love you. Because he wanted to live in a way that was going to cause absolute 
harm and irrevocable damage in his life and his parents are like, we can't let you do that. We can't, we can't condone that. We can't encourage that because we love you. See, sometimes love in, is in fact telling somebody that they are wrong, that their thinking is wrong, that their lifestyle is wrong, that their actions are wrong, that their speech is wrong. I can love somebody and I can still tell them the truth. And so we need to understand that we need to be people who are not characterized by lying, but people who tell the truth. And that we do it in a loving way. Sometimes that means that we come by somebody and we are compassionate and we are gentle and we are kind to them while we are speaking the truth. We don't need to be harsh. We're people who speak the truth, we don't lie. Number 26, or verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give place to the devil. Or do not give the devil an opportunity. Here we're not talking about like a flash in the pan, anger, wrath. I have to say, when I was preparing to preach this passage, I don't know. I'm sure that uh, anybody else in this room that has is, is, is taught a passage of Scripture, has preached, uh, you just find that as you're preparing something, what do you wrestle with? Some of the things that you're actually preaching through. Like I found this week to be a week where I wrestled more with anger than I've wrestled with for a while, <laughs> which is really kind of annoying. But at the same time, this passage applies to me as much as anybody else. There are times when my anger was that, that flash, that heated wrath anger that more often than not leads to sin. The anger that Paul's talking about here is a, it's a deep-seated, determined, settled conviction. It's what we would call righteous indignation. There are things that happen in our lives, there are things that we do, there are things that we see in our world around us that make us angry, and rightfully so. In our prayer time on Tuesday evening, we focused in on the theme of brokenness. It doesn't sound like a very cheery theme, but what was hitting me at the time when we focused in on, on brokenness is, one, our own brokenness as human beings, and how we desperately need to come to the Lord in prayer in so many different areas that were broken. But we live in a broken world. We've heard of school shooters. We've heard of acts of violence. We've heard of war and pestilence and disease. And when we hear of things like that, when we hear of unborn children being murdered, that should make us angry. Why? Because it is wrong. When we hear of a school being shot up, that should make us angry. Why? Because that's sin. And Scripture makes it abundantly clear that as Christians, we should be angry and hate wickedness. But it's a righteous indignation. It's not the wrong kind of anger that is self-defensive or self-serving or resentful of others or undisciplined or vindictive. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not conquer evil. Excuse me, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. See, there are certain things that should make us angry because they're wrong and sinful. But you know what? Paul tells us in Romans here how it is that we deal with that. We let God look after the justice part of that. We're to love our enemies. We're supposed to do good to them. We're supposed to pray for them. We're supposed to supposed to love them in the midst of it and let God worry about the wrath and the justice. But we're not supposed to turn a blind eye to what is wrong, and it should upset us. Jesus was a great example of that. Jesus walked into the temple, and he saw them buying and selling and, and really cheating people who were getting animals to go to the temple to sacrifice and offer up a sacrifice to the Lord as a temporary forgiveness of sins. And he, Jesus walks in and he sees all this buying and selling going on and people getting cheated out of their money. And it made him angry. Why? Because that was not what the temple of God was supposed to be. It was not supposed to be a house for money changers. And what does he do? He goes in and he turns tables over and he releases the animals and he drives people out. Was Jesus wrong in that? Absolutely not. Why? Because he was the God of that temple. That temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. He says, you've changed my house of prayer and you made it into a den of thieves. And he was angry about that and he was rightfully angry about that because that was wrong. In that instance, because Jesus is God, he had the authority to drive those people out. Our response? Be more prayer praying for those, praying that God would bring justice, praying that God would take the authorities that are in place that God ordained to deal with these things. But we are to be angry and not sin. We're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger. Why? Because unresolved anger brings bitterness and resentment. And I'm sure that we've heard that phrase before, that quote, and I don't know who it, who it is that said it. I didn't say it, so I'm not claiming it's mine. But bitterness is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Isn't that ridiculous? But that's what happens. And that bitterness comes when we have unresolved sinful anger in our lives. We're not to give place to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to be honest Excuse me, he has to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with those in need. I just want to highlight a couple passages of Scripture. Exodus 22, verse 4, talks about what stealing, what the law says about stealing. You have to understand that most of our civil laws, our criminal laws that we have, ultimately came from Old Testament law. We have in our books that it's illegal to steal somebody else's property. 
Stealing is taking what doesn't belong to you. To you. Right? And by the way, if I work hard and I earn a wage or I have property that I've purchased with what I've earned because I've worked hard, that is something that God has allowed me to have because of the hard work and the pay that's come with that and so on. Governments in North America, around the world, pushing for the fact that they should be able to take what's yours and give to somebody else. That's, thief. that's, that's, that's theft, that's stealing. You've worked hard for what you have, God has blessed you with that, and if somebody else takes it and gives it to somebody else, that's not their place to do that. That's theft. Can't get around it, that's exactly what it is. Okay? In the Old Testament, when you stole, these are some of the things that the Old Testament said. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it and sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. That's, that's a hefty repayment, folks. Think about that if we applied that to this day and age. Some of you would have four rakes in your garage. Five lawnmowers. I, I don't know. I don't know what you, you give them away, right? Because it says that we share with our stuff. But if a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, no one is guilty of the bloodshed. Wow. It's a pretty stiff penalty. But if this happens after sunrise and the householder is guilty of bloodshed, interesting that if it happens at night, he's not guilty. If it happens after sunrise, he is. Some very specific laws. A thief must make full restitution. If he is unable, he is to be sold because of his theft. Think of that. In the Old Testament, if I stole somebody else's property and I couldn't repay it, I became an indentured servant to them until my debt was paid. It's a pretty stiff penalty. If what, is, what was stolen, whether ox or donkey or sheep, is actually found alive in his possession, he must repay double. That's just the Old Testament. This is what God told Moses to teach the people of Israel. This is just what you deal with when you're talking about theft. That's not other stuff. By the way, it's way longer than that. I'm not going to get into the rest of the passage. I encourage you to read the rest of Exodus 22. It gets into what happens if you let your cattle graze on somebody else's land and how you have to repay that and so on and so forth. It's pretty specific. But you know what? Godly work was established way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. When God created Adam, he, he created him to work and he gave him very specific instructions about what work looked like. And so God blesses when we do the work that God has called us to do. There's nothing wrong with work. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says this to the Thessalonians. Sorry. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Why? Because as far as they were concerned, that's stealing from the people that were working hard. You don't work, you don't eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not Busy, but busy bodies. 1 Timothy 5, 8. Paul teaches Timothy, if, but if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially 
for his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. For those that are too lazy to work and that they don't, they don't actually provide for their family, they're stealing ultimately because they're not doing what God's called them to do, to work hard. And he says they're worse than an unbeliever. How can he say that? Because he said un, even unbelievers work hard and provide for their own families. And yet you know, there are Christians that D Timothy was dealing with that wouldn't even do that. They're in essence stealing because they weren't, weren't working and doing what God called them to do and providing for their families. And as Christians, we are to be hardworking people that don't steal from other people. But as God blesses us in our hard work and doing honest work with our hands, it says so that he has something to share with anyone in need. And we just heard from our missionaries how we as a, as a church have been blessed by God and people have been led in our church to give sacrificially, and what is it doing? It's blessing Christians on another part of the world, and we are now impacting an entire region in that country for Christ. Why? Because we've got hardworking people in our church who have been blessed by God, and they turn around and give to those who have need. Isn't that awesome? That's what makes us distinct. Lastly, I'm just going to cover this and then we'll wrap up. It says, no foul language should come from your mouth, but what only is good for the building up of someone in need so that it gives grace to the hearer. By the way, he says that again in just a few verses down. He says in verse 3 of chapter 5, but sexual immorality uh, and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you, but is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking and crude joking are not suitable, but rather give thanks. James talks about the tongue. We often read the book of James, and we read James 3, and we talk about what James says about the tongue, and I'm going to read it really quick. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble... In what he says, he is mature, able to control the whole body. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole body. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a how small a fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire, and itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless God our, and our, uh, bless our God and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter? Water from the same opening. Can a fig produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt water spring yield, salt water spring yield fresh water. 
We oftentimes read that and say, well, I see nobody can tame the tongue, so what's the bother? But that's not what James is saying. James is saying that though we realize what the tongue is capable of, though we know what our words can do and how harmful they are, you know what? That doesn't mean that we don't work at speaking the way that God has called us to speak, using the language that builds up, not tears down. That we're not cursing people while we're praising God. But there were people that uses appropriate language that builds people up, words that give thanks to God Almighty. As I think about that, as I think about this passage, what are we called to be? Christians, we're called to be distinct in the world that we live in. That if we claim the name of Jesus Christ, we need to live like Christ. This passage harkens back to what Paul said at the very beginning of chapter 4 in Ephesians. He says this, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling that you have received. We have been called by God to live like Christ. Let's live the way that God is calling us to live. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We are a distinct people. We are to live a distinct way. So that when we open up our mouths and we tell people, hey, I'd love to tell you about the Jesus that saved me and transformed my life, they can say, you know what, I've seen your life, and it is different. It's not like anybody else I've ever met. Because we are distinct. We are the church. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're described in the first passage, the first section of that passage that I read, and you know what? My heart for you is not to stay there. Not to stay in that place where you're hard and your heart's and callous towards God, but that you come to that realization that you are a sinful person, that you are an enemy of God, but God wants you to be his friend. Not only his friend, but you want, he wants you to be his son or daughter. He wants to adopt you into his family. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you today.